Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today's episode is dedicated to answering your fertility questions. Big thank you to all who submitted their questions on Instagram. It's so fun for me to hear what you're curious about. The Functional Fertility Hotline is now open, so let's get right into it with your questions. I tried to organize these into somewhat related topics, but it's a good mix. I think you'll find there's some variety here. Our first question is, when in your cycle should you check your hormones? This is maybe one of the most common questions I have in my DMs over on Instagram. And if you find that it's helpful for you to see a visual, keep in mind, you can always head to my website, drkaliawaddles.com. You can download my preconception lab testing checklist that will outline all of this for you. So that is available if you need it, but I'll walk through some of the things that are on that list. I'll talk about hormones and the other things I'm testing just to give you an idea of what my preconception style is. So in terms of timing, When we're assessing fertility specifically, there are some hormones that we want to do on cycle day three. That means cycle day one is the first day of full flow. That comes up sometimes of how do I decide which day is cycle day one if I have some premenstrual spotting. Cycle day one is the first day of full flow. So then cycle day three will get you to the lab. And on cycle day three, it's important that we measure follicle stimulating hormone estradiol, and AMH if we want to look at ovarian reserve. So that tells us a little bit about what pool of egg cells are available in your ovaries. I also measure luteinizing hormone on this day, and we're actually going to talk about that in a few minutes. But cycle day three, I want to get FSH, LH, estradiol, and AMH or anti-malarian hormone. And that is going to give us an idea of ovarian reserve. Now, the other marker that is timing specific during the cycle is progesterone. And we'll talk about progesterone throughout this episode, but I measure serum progesterone, so progesterone with a blood draw, a week after ovulation. So there's two different times in the cycle that I am having patients get to the lab on cycle day three and then a week after ovulation. That being said, especially if you're looking at that checklist right now, there are many, many other labs that I like to look at. If someone hasn't had any labs before and I'm really doing a fresh set of eyes, a a preconception, comprehensive preconception assessment. So there are some other hormones that I'll look at. Testosterone, DHEA sulfate, prolactin. I like to see those as well. I also do a full thyroid panel. So for me, that means a thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH, a free T4, free T3, reverse T3, and then our thyroid antibodies. So that's anti-TPO and anti-thyroglobulin antibodies. Those aren't timing specific, but I will time them with the other blood draws I'm doing. So if I'm sending someone for cycle day three, like if they come in at the very you know end of one cycle, and so we're looking ahead to cycle day three, I'll have them just go in and do all this stuff. So All these labs we've talked about already, metabolic markers, uh, a CBC to look at their red and white blood cells, I'll look at their CMP, a a comprehensive metabolic panel, and GGT, which is kind of related to a CMP, but it's another marker of total body toxin burden. So I'll look at that. I look at a hemoglobin A1C, which tells us about your blood sugar over the last three months, a fasting insulin, a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is my favorite inflammatory marker. I'll do a lipid panel if my patient hasn't had that in a while. 
I'll look at some nutritional markers, so vitamin D, ferritin, iron and total iron binding capacity. I'll look at a B12, homocysteine, uric acid, and then depending on the patient's history and their needs, sometimes we do an infection screen as well, so HIV, syphilis, hepatitis, things like CMV, EBV, varicella titers if they're not sure, if they're immune, chlamydia and gonorrhea. So infection screening as needed, but the rest of it I will either order on cycle day three or a week after ovulation since my patient is already going to the lab. So in summary, there tends to be two different lab visits and that allows us to capture our hormones, our thyroid markers, metabolic markers, nutritional markers, and really get an idea of how hormones are behaving over the course of the menstrual cycle. So now that's a perfect lead into our next question, which is how does low estrogen impact fertility? So maybe you went to the lab and you measured estradiol, which is the main circulating estrogen in a reproductive age female and saw that that was low. Let's talk a little bit about why estrogen is important in the first place. It's really essential for the growth and maturation of our ovarian follicles, which are our little egg sacs that our egg cell is swimming in. Estrogen thickens the uterine lining to prepare for implantation. It helps to create that nice cozy landing spot. It enhances fertile quality cervical fluid, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, and it primes the body for ovulation. Just to give you a little review of some reproductive physiology, as our follicle or our egg sac is growing, it's producing estrogen. And that estrogen is entering into the bloodstream where it's traveling all over, including to the brain. And the brain is collecting this data and it's detecting the level of estrogen that is getting higher and higher as that follicle gets bigger and bigger and is producing more hormone. And at a point that is roughly mid-cycle for most people, estrogen will reach a point that is high enough that the brain will say, okay, we've done it. We got it. We have an egg that's now big enough to ovulate. And I can tell because we have, it's producing so much, so much estrogen. So I know it's big enough. Let's get it out there where the sperm are waiting and we can fertilize this egg. So now the brain has to let the ovary know that this executive decision has been made, all systems go, and we can send luteinizing hormone to trigger ovulation. So if you're using an ovulation predictor kit, which we're going to talk about, that detects luteinizing hormone, the reason why we get that surge in luteinizing hormone is because estrogen told our brain that we were ready for it. So sometimes when I see that someone is not ovulating regularly or they have a thin endometrium, I'm really wondering what is going on with estrogen and, and how can we look at causes, root causes of low estrogen? Some of the reasons why estrogen might be low are things like if you have an energy imbalance. And what I mean by that is if you are under eating or over-exercising, and your expenditure of energy is much more than your intake of energy, that can cause low estrogen because of the way that it impacts the way that our brain and our ovaries communicate. So that's something to think about in the setting of low estrogen. If someone has something like um, an autoimmune condition, especially things like Sjogren's, that can impact our estrogen status. Sometimes there's a genetic component. Sometimes if uh, someone has had a, an ovarian surgery or procedure, that can impact estrogen production. If we have what's called premature ovarian insufficiency, 
that can impact estrogen because we just have you know, less eggs that are making hormone. And so that's something that we think about of um, oh, what what is the both the ovarian reserve, but also what's going on with those follicles, right? Because I told you that the developing follicles make estrogen. So we have to think about the health of those follicles. And um, there's so many things that are on my mind when I'm thinking about follicular maturation. It's things like antioxidant status. We know that that's really important for follicle maturation. DHEA sulfate, which is another reason why that is on my list of labs that I check because DHEA sulfate is important for that maturation process. Vitamin D status, even mineral status, especially things like calcium are super important. Thyroid hormone, we know that thyroid hormone activates the cells of that follicle to help them produce hormone like estrogen. So if someone is hypothyroid or they have low thyroid hormone, we see more anovulatory cycles and we can see lower hormone production. So that's something to think about. Pelvic blood flow is really, really important to nourish those developing follicles, which is part of the reason I get everyone into acupuncture because it's so effective at supporting pelvic blood flow. Lots to think about here. And I think this is why it can be so helpful to work with someone who will really think about reproductive health, but really overall health in a comprehensive way because there's so many players here. But that's what I'm thinking about if someone um, is dealing with low estrogen and that's how it can impact fertility. It's really because of the impact on the growth and maturation of the ovarian follicles, the thickening of the uterine lining, and just the way that it primes the body for ovulation and primes the body to have that luteinizing hormone spike. So the next question is kind of related. It's why is my period so short? And maybe you've noticed this, that your period is short. Maybe it's only a few days. Maybe it used to be, you know, five days of bleeding and now it's two and a half and it's pretty light. You don't have to use a super tampon anymore. Maybe it's always been that way. It's always been light and you really only need a panty liner and you're wondering if this is normal. The first question I ask is if you're getting your period regularly, meaning is your cycle length roughly the same amount month to month? Like is is the time of day one of your period to the next day one of your period roughly the same every month? Because that's going to be a great indication that you're ovulating and that your hormones are functional. It's kind of just the first question. So for example, if your period is only three days long, but that happens to you every month and your cycle is pretty regular, then I'm less concerned than if this is something that's brand new. It just has been happening over the last couple cycles. Or if your period is very short and your period is irregular, then I have much more investigation to do. So again, remember going back to estrogen, estrogen is responsible for building that lining of the uterus until it's shed during your period. So if the estrogen isn't optimal, that lining won't thicken normally and there won't there just is not a lot to get rid of during menses because it just didn't thicken very much. So we might want to think about do we need to support your estrogen in some way, which really goes back to that those root causes like energy expenditure and autoimmunity and what's going on with your whole hormonal picture. Maybe you have some other clues that you need some estrogen support, like decreased vaginal lubrication. If sex is more painful, probably because there's not as much lubrication. If you're having hot flashes, frequent UTIs, a depressed mood, or in a regular period like we talked about, trouble getting pregnant, we might want to think about how we can support your estrogen production. 
but it's not always because you have, you know, uh, an issue with estrogen. Maybe you have a lot of stress going on. Like maybe you're in a phase where it's final exams or you just started a new job or you had a big move or there was some kind of family change. Stress can have an impact. An overactive thyroid, actually. So hyperthyroidism can impact your period and make your period shorter. If you've had a pelvic surgery, like maybe you um, had some kind of procedure done and now you have some adhesions in the uterus that can disrupt the development of the endometrium. Or you recently discontinued birth control and your body is establishing this natural rhythm again between your brain and your ovaries. So there's lots to think about. And if you're worried about either a light or a short period, definitely bring it up with your doctor. We can do some hormone testing. We can look into it. I find that with some careful tracking, documenting, targeted lab work, and perhaps an ultrasound, that can be really helpful for us to get to the bottom of this and understand the full story. So definitely worth a conversation with your doctor. It doesn't hurt to ask and at least get you some reassurance or some answers, get you the information that you need. As we're talking about all of these different hormones, another question that came through is what are your optimal levels for FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone, or LH? As a reminder, I'm measuring these on cycle day three. So for FSH, if you look at the reference range, if you just order through, you know, Quest or LabCorp or some of these national labs here in the United States, the reference range is probably going to be 2.5 to 10.2 milli international units per milliliter. I know that's a mouthful. So let's just say 2.5 to 10.2. I like to see FSH roughly mid-range. So I'm looking for it to be a 7-ish or below 7 and that's ideal for me. And then we look at that. I like to look at that in a ratio to luteinizing hormone. So I like to see these things in a roughly, roughly one-to-one ratio. So the reference range for luteinizing hormone is 1.9 to 12.5. So again, mid-range is ideal for me, roughly one-to-one ratio with FSH. Doesn't have to be exactly one-to-one, but my suspicion for PCOS increases when the LH to FSH ratio is greater than 2.1. So oftentimes with my patients who have PCOS, we might see a luteinizing hormone to follicle stimulating ratio that's like four to one. Not always, but that is a pattern that you might observe. So my suspicion is increased when I see that ratio above 2.1, and then I know to do a little bit more investigating. It's just another piece to the puzzle, just a helpful a helpful piece of information. So I like to see both of them around seven and roughly one-to-one ratio when we do those cycle day three labs. Okay, so my next question is, what counts as ovulation day when using ovulation predictor kits? And I know there's a huge love-hate relationship with, with OPKs. And if you follow me on Instagram, you probably know I personally love OPKs and that they worked really well for me, but I want to hold and acknowledge the fact that not everyone loves OPKs and that's totally fine. You don't have to use them. But if you're using them and you need some more information, here I am to help you out. So what counts as ovulation day when using an OPK? Let's go back to our physiology review just briefly. About halfway through your menstrual cycle, roughly, The pituitary gland is going to release a big surge of luteinizing hormone, which triggers ovulation. And this surge of LH is detected in the urine by your OPK. Keep in mind that 
you will have some luteinizing hormone in your bloodstream most days of your cycle. So if you're using the OPKs that are just the two lines on a paper strip, you'll likely detect some hormone throughout your cycle. So you'll see that the control line will be very dark and then your test line will be light. And that's because you have some luteinizing hormone in your bloodstream, but we're waiting for that surge, for that peak of luteinizing hormone. So your OPK isn't positive until the test line is as dark or darker than the control line. It really has to be as dark or darker. So you'll have to do it likely several days in a row to see that progression. It is a little easier. I mean, I love the Amazon bulk purchased OPKs. I use those for years. But if you're if you're wanting to add precision or if the cheapy style OPKs are giving you anxiety because they're trouble, you have trouble interpreting them, which they can be tough to interpret, it is a little easier to detect your LH peak if you're using a fertility monitor like Mira, which is my favorite, that can help you interpret your test strips and let you know when your LH has surged. It's digitized. It can give you um, a notification to let you know that you've had your LH surge, that you've actually ovulated. So once you have this LH surge, either on your, you know, paper test strip or using your fertility monitor, you'll likely ovulate 24 to 36 hours later. So your surge is before you actually ovulate. And that's why it's called an ovulation predictor kit, because it tells you that ovulation is near, that your fertile window is opening so that you can time intercourse appropriately. Let me take a moment now to answer some follow-up questions about this, because uh, I think this is important. Someone asked, can I have an LH surge and not ovulate? And this is so frustrating, but you can. You can actually have an LH surge, but not truly ovulate, which is why it's so important to look at other, to confirm ovulation in some way, which I'll talk about. But just keep in mind, when you get that LH surge, that is your brain telling the ovary that you can ovulate, that here's this egg. We're, it's time. Release that egg. But for a variety of reasons, your ovary might not actually respond to that luteinizing hormone. And so it, it's frustrating if you're getting an LH surge and you're, you know, cycle after cycle and, and you're not getting pregnant. And that's when I want to test progesterone, which is perfect because someone asked, when should I test my progesterone? And we talked about that at the very beginning with timing our labs. But I want to measure progesterone a week after you ovulate to confirm that it actually happened because we'll see this steep increase in progesterone if you actually ovulated. And there are some other ways that you can confirm ovulation. If you're using a basal body temp, you'll see your temp spike. That's a good indication because your temp, you only make progesterone if you actually ovulated. And so an increase in your body temp, an increase in your serum progesterone, sometimes an ultrasound is required. And um, that is a, a definitive way to confirm that you've ovulated. But for most of my patients, I'll just do a serum progesterone at least a couple times so that we can get a sense of what's happening in that luteal phase. And we do that a week after ovulation to confirm that it actually happened. And I get this question all the time. People be like, I got my LH surge, so I know I'm, I know I'm ovulating. No, we have to add another data point so that we can be sure. And then finally, someone said, should I trust my app or the signs that I'm getting from my body? So there are other signs that you'll be ovulating. And one of my favorites that I've talked about all the time that we're actually going to talk about in a moment is cervical fluid. So you're going to get 
probably a couple days of that egg white quality cervical fluid before you ovulate. And that is a great indication that your body is preparing for ovulation. You can start having sex. It's going to serve as a sperm reservoir and keep that sperm right where you want it. Keep it they call it in the research, biochemically nourished. But really, it means it has like the sugar and electrolyte content that cervical fluid does that is appropriate to keep sperm alive. So once you see that fluid, you know that ovulation will likely be happening in a couple of days. Always trust that over any app. Your body is giving you information every day. The app is using an algorithm, and that's great. It's super helpful when you're just getting started, but your body's signs will always be more accurate than the app. So if you're seeing cervical fluid, but your app is not telling you or is saying that your fertile window isn't open yet, trust your body more than any technology. That's what I'll say about that. Um, Before we move on from the topic of OPK, someone asked me, can an OPK be used as a pregnancy test? And I know if you've been on any TTC forums, if you've been on any of the apps, I know you've seen the post showing that someone took an ovulation test and they used it to detect early pregnancy. Is this a helpful thing to do? No. Have I done this before? Absolutely, I have. I have done all the experimenting. And you might be wondering, why would someone do that? Um, And I hear a lot of reasons, like someone is testing all through the months because they just love to do tests, like the pee on the stick addicts that you hear about. And I really relate to that because that's me. So maybe someone, they get their LH surge. And I usually tell people, once you see your positive OPK, just stop. Like, you're good. You don't need to keep testing. But some people will just keep testing, like, until they get their next period. And so they might see another um, positive test later on in the month. And they're like, oh, my gosh, am I pregnant? Some people will take um, OPKs because they don't want to waste their money on expensive pregnancy tests, like maybe they have a bunch of Amazon cheapies in their pantry and they don't want to use a clear blue digital yet to see if they're pregnant. Or people tell me that they're not emotionally ready to see the result of their pregnancy test yet. So taking an OPK is like a trial run, like a soft launch of the results. Let me explain where this all comes from. Ovulation tests and pregnancy tests are similar, right, in that they measure hormone in your urine. An ovulation test, like we've talked about, detects luteinizing hormone. And a pregnancy test detects human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG, to confirm a pregnancy. So the root of this taken LH strip to detect pregnancy thing comes from the fact that luteinizing hormone and HCG are pretty close in structure, like in molecular structure. And they're so close that some of the ovulation tests aren't actually sensitive enough to tell them apart. So for that reason, you may get an LH test strip that looks positive when you're pregnant. Like if you take the same brand, so Wanfo from Amazon is the brand that I used for years, and their HCG and their LH test strips, they're just the little paper strips, they look very similar. And if you were to take a bunch of those while you were pregnant, like the HCG would be positive, obviously, but the luteinizing hormone one, it would also look dark. From my experience, Using a luteinizing hormone strip or an OPK to detect pregnancy is problematic for a few reasons. So here's why I don't recommend that you do that. You might get a light line and it freaks you out, but it's fine. It wasn't designed to detect HCG. So if you think you're pregnant and you take your OPK and you get a light line, if that's going to mess with your head and make you feel really anxious, 
don't do it. It's not a pregnancy test, so don't do it. It'll probably just give you nightmares. The other thing is, if you do get a positive, it might make you wonder, like, oh gosh, am I actually pregnant and it's detecting HCG? Or did I totally miss my ovulation window? Like I messed up my calculation and now I'm really ovulating late. And then you panic that your timing was all off and that your cycle was different this time and it can give you, you're just going to spiral. So don't do it. I, I strongly advise waiting until the day of your missed period and then taking an actual home pregnancy test. And then if you get your positive, if you're my patient, please send me the picture in our patient portal and I will cry and laugh and smile and be so excited for you. But you work with your doctor how you want to on next steps. Maybe you're going to do a blood draw, measure your an actual number on your HCG. Then you're going to repeat that about 48 hours later, see that that number is doubling, which is what we want. But my advice, the take-home message here, don't use your OPK as a pregnancy test. It's probably going to freak you out. <laughs> on a related topic, someone asked me, um, if I'm prescribed progesterone to support my luteal phase, will I continue that into pregnancy? And I'm going to take one step back here and talk about how I prescribe progesterone for the luteal phase because it's actually related to an OPK. So remember that once you ovulate, so that egg cell is going to burst from the follicle, that egg sac, and then the structure, that follicle that used to have the egg inside that's now burst, that structure is going to become something called the corpus luteum, and it is going to pump out progesterone. This is why I said you only make progesterone if you actually ovulate because it's that structure, the corpus luteum, that is an empty and now empty follicle that is going to make progesterone. It is very important to me that we only have progesterone supplemented. So I'm only going to prescribe a progesterone after ovulation has occurred. Because if we give progesterone before we ovulate, the brain is going to detect that progesterone and it's going to think you already ovulated, right? Because the natural physiology is that we only have a lot of progesterone in our bloodstream when we have ovulated. We don't want the brain to believe we've ovulated before we have because then it's going to say all good here. We either have already ovulated or we're already pregnant. No need to ovulate. So it's very important to me that we're only bringing on progesterone after ovulation. So what I typically do is I have my patients do their OPK. They get their positive OPK. We know that they'll then ovulate 24 to 36 hours later-ish. You know, it's a range, but ish. So I have them start their progesterone three days after that peak. That gives me confidence that we're not starting the progesterone before they have ovulated. So if you're taking luteal phase progesterone, I will tell my patients we're going to take it for two weeks. And you, so that should time up, right? Because you started right after you ovulated. So if we take it for two weeks, that should be around the time that you would expect your period. So we'll take the progesterone for two weeks. And then I have people take a pregnancy test before they discontinue. Because if they are indeed pregnant, I would like them to continue on their progesterone. They'll transfer care to their birth provider, whether that's their OB or their midwife. And then that person will likely keep them on their progesterone through their first trimester. Very common to stay on through the first trimester. So I'm having everyone take a pregnancy test before they discontinue. If the if the um, 
pregnancy test is negative, then they can discontinue their progesterone. Most people will start their period like the next day or maybe two days after, pretty soon after they discontinue, and we'll move on to the next cycle. So that's how I prescribe progesterone. Very likely that it will continue on into pregnancy until the placenta is making enough of its own progesterone that you're good to go. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because the next question is, how do I know if I have a gut issue if I don't have obvious symptoms like constipation or diarrhea or bloating? And this is a great question because sometimes gut issues, they don't necessarily look like, you know, you eat food and then you're bloated. So I like to look at history. History is a big, a big important piece of the functional medicine approach. So I I start to look for trends. Like, has this person used a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen? I see this a lot in people who have really bad menstrual cramping. Maybe they've taken a lot of ibuprofen. Or if they get headaches, they've taken a lot of ibuprofen, which can lead to increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut. It can damage the cells in the stomach. So these are things that I think about. Um, Do they have rashes or other skin conditions like rosacea, we see a big connection with the gut microbiome and skin conditions. There Are there mood changes happening or a history of mood disorders? Because we know that our gut is where we make many of our neurotransmitters. So that's something I'm thinking about. And does someone have frequent illness? Do they always get sick? Do they have an autoimmune disease? Many of these historical pieces are related to the gut microbiome, to our level of intestinal permeability, in other words, our degree of leaky gut. And then if we look at fertility specifically, we know that if someone has increased intestinal permeability, so they have leaky gut because of, you know, NSAIDs or alcohol or food sensitivities, inflammation in the gut, they can have leaky intestinal barrier. So that means compounds from inside the intestinal tract are able to traverse that intestinal barrier and enter systemic circulation where they can trigger an inflammatory response. And that can be systemic. And we see this connection between increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut that can actually cause inflammation in the ovary itself and impair progesterone production. So sometimes I have patients who have just low progesterone throughout their luteal phase, or they have progesterone that maybe spikes a little, but then it falls off really quickly because the ovary is inflamed. So in luteal phase dysfunction or short luteal phase, I'm thinking about what's going on in the gut. We also have animal studies that show that when there's increased intestinal permeability, that we see inflammation at the level of the endometrium, that inner lining of the uterus, and that can impair endometrial receptivity. So if I have patients who I know they're ovulating, their partner has healthy sperm, and for whatever reason, they're just not getting pregnant, even though all of the components look like they're working, I am wondering about what's going on with their endometrium because that's kind of the components you're thinking about, right? Like healthy egg that's actually ovulated, healthy sperm, are we fertilizing? And then once we have an egg cell that's been fertilized, can we implant? So I'm thinking about endometrial receptivity. So that's kind of some fertility implications of gut issues. What I tend to do if patients are curious about their gut or if they have some red flag pieces of their history and they want some solid info, 
is to do a comprehensive stool analysis. So I either use the GI map test or GI effects. There's pros and cons to both, which I talk to patients about, but either of them are a comprehensive stool analysis. So that this actually involves collecting a stool sample at home. It's not glamorous, but it's very helpful because it allows us to look at the microbial composition in the gut, immune markers, inflammatory markers, enzyme production, the presence of parasites or pathogens, and then I can create a tailored treatment plan that's based on those results. So rather than just throwing, you know, random supplements at, at, at a patient, I can really understand what they need specifically to restore the function of their gut health. I'll then create something that's called a 5R program for gut restoration, and it's kind of fun. So I thought maybe I would take a moment and tell you all about a 5R framework or a 5R program for gut restoration, because I think this is an area where functional medicine really shines and can really do so much good work. So the five R's stand for remove, replace, re-inoculate, repair, and rebalance. And when we use this framework, it can lead to dramatic improvements in symptoms and sometimes a complete resolution. And most of the time, people feel a lot better once these components are addressed. So I'll just briefly give you an, an overview of what this means. So remove, that means we're getting rid of things that negatively affect the environment of the GI tract. And this is why testing can be helpful because sometimes we need to remove things like parasites or problematic bacteria or yeast or sometimes someone has some food sensitivities and we need to remove those food triggers. So we might use something like a comprehensive elimination diet too. And that's a three-week plan where we remove all of these very common triggers and then we systematically add them back so that we can understand an individual's unique triggers. This might also mean taking medication or herbs to clear an infection at times. So this is how testing can add specificity or precision to our treatment plan so that we know exactly what we are removing. The next is replace. And this means replacing digestive components or digestive secretions. So it's adding back things like digestive enzymes, bile acids, hydrochloric acid, these things that are required for proper digestion and assimilation. They might be compromised by things that are going on in our diet, by medications we're taking, even by aging, by other factors, like if we're eating in a really distracted setting, um, if we're eating while we're really stressed out, we're eating in front of the computer or we're on our phone. That's why another reason why testing is really helpful so that I can understand, are you bloated because you don't have enough pancreatic enzymes? Or are you experiencing iron deficiency anemia because you actually don't have enough hydrochloric acid to help pull iron from your food? So we can replace these factors that are missing. And oftentimes we see pretty dramatic symptom resolution when we get that targeted therapy. Reinoculate. So this means how do we support helpful, beneficial bacteria in the gut and allow them to flourish. And oftentimes that means we're eating probiotic-rich foods or we're taking probiotic supplements that contain good bacterias like bifidobacteria and lactobacilli, and we're eating high-fiber foods to supply prebiotics, which will nourish those good microbes. So as we re-inoculate, we might think about both food and supplemental sources of probiotics and prebiotics 
so that we have a really healthy microbial composition in the gut, which is important for so many things, our nutrient absorption, our immune system, our, our fertility. Maybe you've, I've talked with guests on this podcast before about how the, the microbial composition in our gut can be really helpful for fertility. We want a really strong, robust community of lactobacilli. So that's what we'll do in the re-inoculate phase. The fourth R is repair. And this means helping to repair the lining of the gut. So we've talked about intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And there are some key nutrients that we might want to utilize if someone has compromised intestinal barrier function, things like zinc, antioxidants like vitamins A, C, E, zinc. I already mentioned zinc, selenium, omega-3 fish oils. Uh, sometimes we'll use the amino acid glutamine. We have all kinds of tools um, to help repair the intestinal barrier. Like Also, I think about bone broth here. All kinds of tools, but we need to know that that is part of someone's story. So we'll work on repairing. And then rebalance. This is where we focus on the modifiable lifestyle factors that can impact the health of our gut. So things like sleep, exercise, stress, nutrition, our nervous system, we have to balance these factors to support optimal health within our digestive tract. So we're doing all of these targeted therapies inside the actual, our actual gut, but then we're working to rebalance and find homeostasis as an organism, which is so important to keep our gut healthy. So it's very comprehensive. I can customize this for everyone. And I love delivering a five-hour program to patients because it's so comforting and reassuring, I think, to know that the things that you're taking have a meaning and have some direction and that it's based on your specific scenario. So that's super exciting. Okay, so let's get back to our Q&A questions here. The next one is, how do I know if I have a blocked fallopian tube? In this case, we need to do a hysterosalpingogram or an HSG. And this is a diagnostic tool. It's a radiologic procedure that's designed to assess the health um, of a woman's fallopian tubes in a uterus to see, are those tubes open? So during this procedure, a contrast dye is injected into the uterine cavity through the cervix. So it goes through the cervix, it enters into the uterine cavity, and it allows for the provider to visualize the uterine and tubal structures on x-ray imaging. HSG is super commonly performed to investigate potential causes of infertility because they can let us, they can help visualize the anatomy of the reproductive organs. It can reveal abnormalities like um, a, a malformation in the, in the uterus itself, blockages in the fallopian tubes, or abnormalities in the shape of the uterus. So I think this is really important, especially if you know that you're ovulating regularly, that your partner's sperm are healthy, but you're still not getting pregnant. Like, let's make sure that those fallopian tubes are open. Usually when you start working with a fertility clinic, this is one of the first things that they'll do. And I certainly refer to my local fertility clinic for this imaging. I sometimes get messages where people are a little bit hesitant. They don't they don't want to do it's it's a procedure it's definitely a procedure and people feel a lot of apprehension but there's really no other way that we can get this information without imaging so i think this is important and i think it's a really helpful step in your fertility journey okay so the next question is should i take mucinex for my cervical fluid and 
My answer is you certainly can. Mucinex is helpful because it thins secretions, right? That just makes sense. That's why we take it when we have sinus congestion because it helps to, to thin that mucus and help it drain. And that's why people see a benefit for their cervical fluid. So Mucinex works. You could totally take that. I will offer an alternative. And my alternative is NAC or N-acetylcysteine. This is also um, a nutritional compound that is mucolytic. It has a mucolytic action, meaning it thins mucus. It works very well. I dose it at um, 600 milligrams three times a day. Uh, obviously, talk to your own doctor and make sure that this is right for you, but that's how I dose it. And the reason why I like it is because not only is it super helpful for for um, creating that egg white cervical fluid, but it's also a powerful antioxidant. One of my favorite fertility supplements. I love it to support both the health of eggs and sperm. So I think it's a great alternative to Mucinex because it has a variety of actions that are supportive of fertility. That's what I like to use, especially if someone is also taking Clomid, which we know can make that cervical fluid very thick. I love to add some NAC. Talk to your doctor. I think it's a good option. Okay, so the next question is, can you talk about uh, cervical position and fertility? I would love to talk about this. The cervix changes throughout the month to reflect the ovulatory cycle. It, after all, it is the sperm gatekeeper, right? So a fertile cervix is soft, it's higher in the pelvis, it's open, and it's wet. So some people remember this with the acronym SHOW, S-H-O-W, soft, high, open, and wet. Outside of the ovulatory window, the cervix is more firm, it's lower in the pelvis, and it remains more closed. This is actually super cool. I'm really impressed with the human body because as you get closer to ovulation, estrogen causes the uterine ligaments to lift the cervix higher into the pelvis. It also softens the cervical tissue. It makes it easier for sperm to enter. And not only are these changes important for fertility, but some women find that certain positions that allow for deeper penetration are more comfortable closer to ovulation when the cervix is higher. And it might be more painful or tender other times of the month, just because the cervix is lower into the pelvis. If you are interested in monitoring your own cervical position, I usually tell people it's probably going to take you a few cycles to become proficient at identifying that fertile cervix. You have to get used to the feeling. I think it's best to start after your period has ended and aim for the same time of day in the same position every time. So that'll help get you used to your own patterns and um, get you acquainted with your own anatomy. Before you get started, I had to say, just always wash your hands. You are going to be feeling um, for tissue that is somewhat fragile and is serves as an entry point into your reproductive tract. So just wash your hands. Find the position that works best for you. I think many women prefer to check their cervix while seated. Honestly, the toilet is a really accessible way to do this. You're right there. You might also consider sitting on the side of the bathtub like with one leg propped up. Some people prefer squatting since it brings the cervix down low and is a little bit easier to access. Whatever's most comfortable for you, you might need to experiment. Most people will, will use their middle finger inserted into the vaginal opening and then will reach back until you feel kind of the end of the tunnel. I advise you to go slow. Don't get frustrated. You might need to feel around a little bit. When you're not ovulating, the cervix is often described as feeling firm 
but with somewhat of a give. So an example of a tissue type that might feel similar is the tip of your nose. And then nearing ovulation, the cervix will be softer, it'll be higher, it'll be more open. Now, if you have delivered a baby vaginally, it will always likely feel a little bit more open just because a whole entire human came through there. So that's why you have to get used to your own body and identify your own anatomy, and then you'll be able to find patterns. And if this isn't your favorite way to monitor and you don't want to identify your ovulation by monitoring your cervical position, totally fine. You have many other ways you could use your cervical fluid. You could monitor changes in libido. You could use your ovulation predictor kit. All good. And if you want to put them all together, that's even better. So you choose what's best for you. The next question is, is it normal to spot during ovulation? And my answer is, it can be. Somewhere between 3 and 5% of women spot around the time of ovulation. So it's not super common, but it can happen. I don't see it a lot, but some patients experience this. But I think we need to recap what we mean by spotting. This is a very, very light bleed. It might even just be sparse enough that you notice like little tinges, little teeny, teeny little red spots almost on your tissue when you're using the restroom. Most people will see like light pink discharge or some red streaking in their normal cervical fluid. And sometimes patients will tell me, I think if I wasn't so hyper aware of my fertility, I probably wouldn't even notice. Like maybe I've been having ovulatory spotting my whole life and I just never noticed because I wasn't staring at my cervical fluid with such intensity. Um, So why does this happen? Why do some women spot when they ovulate? And there's a few reasons that this could be happening right after ovulation, estrogen levels drop. And because we, we talked about this, estrogen is responsible for causing that lining of the uterus to thicken, that drop in hormone could cause a little bit of that tissue to slough off. The other thing is that in order to ovulate, that tiny egg has to burst out of its follicle. And this could potentially lead to some spotting or cramping, tenderness, um, if you're having heavy bleeding throughout your cycle, or if if it's more than spotting mid-cycle, it's a good time to check in with your doc, maybe do some lab work, do some imaging, but monitor this. Keep monitoring and tracking it on whatever you're using. If it's an app or a pen and paper situation, keep monitoring this so that you can identify patterns over time. All right, one more question, and I think this is a good one to end on. How do I find a functional medicine doctor? This comes up all the time. So as many of you know, I am a naturopathic doctor by training, but I have my postdoctoral certification through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And this is what allows me to use the functional medicine matrix, which I've talked about before. And it really helped me. It's a conceptual framework on which I hang my naturopathic therapeutics and helps me to really approach complex cases in a systematic, comprehensive way. So if you want to find a functional medicine doctor near you, I highly recommend that you go to the Institute for Functional Medicine's website at ifm.org. You'll see that there's a find a practitioner tool there. You click on the button, you enter in your own zip code, and you can find a practitioner that's near you. If you want to click the advanced advanced search option, you can select female, I think it's female disorders, and that will help to narrow the field and you can start to do some homework and contact the physicians that are in your area or the practitioners in your area to see if they have some expertise in fertility, if that's what you'd like to work on. Uh, Keep in mind that maybe there's going to be someone in your state that's not in your town, but they may offer telemedicine. So it's definitely worth going to their website, figuring out what services they have available. 
And then I have some friends in the biz. So if you can't find anyone, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. And if I know someone in your state, I'm super happy to send them your way. And I love to support the docs in my world who are amazing. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to this Q&A episode. These are really fun. We'll have more of them coming up in 2024. Thank you so much for spending this year with me. Our podcast was born in 2023, and it's just been such a pleasure and such a learning experience and an opportunity to connect with you all in a really meaningful, deep way. So please feel the love and gratitude that is coming from my heart. Truly, truly, thank you so much for being here. Can't wait to see everything that happens in 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.